Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time and this fellowship and time to reflect in your word, and we just pray right now for wisdom, um, both for us and each one here in this room. You promise um, when we don't have what we need, when we recognize that you have all we need, you are there, and we just praise you. So just bless this panel and the questions. May all that we say and do glorify you right now. Thank you in your precious name. Amen. All right, so our first question that we've received, um, and it reads, this is a little brief overview of this person's situation. And they say, I'm a young adult who is HIV positive, and I've always believed it, got, it to be God's will for me to be involved in medical missionary work. After applying to one of the medical missionary institutions and informing them of my status, as it was indicated when applying to state if one had the illness, I received a rejection letter upon asking I received a rejection letter. Upon asking if I can be guided into a program more suitable for me, I was told I could not be admitted to their institution for any program at all. I was devastated and I have been struggling spiritually since it happened. Does my illness disqualify me from medical missionary work and where do I go from here? Dr. Walsh? Well, let me say that I've, I've advised two U.S. presidents on HIV and AIDS and help direct money to Africa through PEPFAR and I've done a lot of program work in, in my last public health position in Pasadena that was really the pride of the work we did was to bring in money to assist individuals um, suffering from or just infected with the HIV virus. The fact that someone who says they teach medical missionary work would not take someone with HIV tells me they don't really know the medical side. It's a statement that they actually don't understand the disease. And if they don't understand that disease, I would question how much they know about any other disease. Uh, so that would really be my answer, is that it is a blessing in disguise. You should go somewhere where you can actually get really good medical uh, training. Amen. All right. The next question, again, people have texted us and let us know a particular question for presenters, but all presenters, please feel free to, to chime in. This one is for John and April. This person asks, is it okay for girls to ask guys out? Absolutely not, just kidding. No, it's okay, it's okay. We, we actually talked about this beforehand because I believe um, this question may have come up before in another one of these sessions. And so as we were uh, preparing for uh, our sessions down there, there were several questions that were listed, and that was one of them. And there were actually there were more than one question that had to do with um, the woman in the situation being the aggressor, I guess is what we think of in this case. Um, sometimes two people that come together have personality styles that fit each other where the woman might be a little bit more uh, type A, and the man could be a little bit more reserved. And for those two to be together, we think it's fine if the woman asks the man out. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, though it may put certain men off, um, but that kind of man's probably not the one that she wants to be with. So we think it's okay, but it may be a little bit awkward in some situations. I don't think there's any kind of um, biblical mandate that says, women should not ask a man out. Unless you can show me that. 
I personally think that if you want to have a godly man leading in a marriage, you need to allow him to lead from the beginning and not start the process. God is able to bring that person along. So I would say we do not take that initiative in the beginning. So let me respond to that because that's good. I didn't think about that aspect. Um, Leadership is an interesting thing. When the Bible talks about spiritual leadership in the home, I don't think it means that in no case can the woman voice her opinion about something needing to be a certain way. I'll give you an example. In our family, April and I have made a decision that in certain cases, sometimes we may have a disagreement between each other for which we do not have... uh, there, there, may be, there may be a case where both of us disagree about a particular issue in such a way that we need somebody to break a tie, okay? I feel one way about something, she feels another way about something, and this may be about something that's not necessarily spiritual, right? How do we decide who the person is who is going to break that tie? Well, in our relationship, what we have done is we have said there are certain aspects of our home that she has the tie-breaking vote And there are other aspects where I have the tie-breaking vote. I'll give you an example. With our children, we have decided that April has a better understanding about certain things about child-rearing than I do. So when it comes to that, if we don't agree about a particular thing, and we decide that we're going to go different ways, we're not going to go different ways. We're obviously going to walk together. Sometimes she is the one who gets the tie-breaking vote. Some person might say that's her leading. I don't know how you would put that. But the reality is, just because I am the spiritual head of the home does not mean I'm the best person to make every decision. When it comes to child rearing, we have determined my wife is better to make that decision than I am. You see what I'm saying? So anyway, I think it might be the same in this case. I don't think that just because the woman asks the man out on the first date, it means it's setting the relationship up where she's going to be the leader and he's not. I don't agree with that. Anyway. Um, this May, the 25th, will make 22 precious years that I've been privileged to be married to my bride, Alexandra. And 22 years ago, you know, 23, my wife proposed to me. And, yeah, you know, she proposed to me. And, you know, I obviously said yes. (laughs) And we were excited. We were in the church. But there was much that we did not understand. We, We often mingled a little bit of what we thought was right and also what the Word of God said. As we began to read Adventist Home and Child Guidance and, you know, these books that we understand to be inspired, by God. Um, as we began to read those teachings, and one of the books I read was Education, the book Education. And in there, it talks about Eden being the model church, the model school, and also the model home. And as we began to study Eden, we started to look at all the principles you learned through Eden. And in Eden, I believe God left an example. And I don't believe it was a mistake, for the Lord said that what he did was good after he did it. And that was 
that God, when creating the relationship between the man and the woman in marriage, he brought the man to the woman. And I see beautiful demonstrations of how we love him because he first loved us, you know, and it follows the biblical example. And so when I see in scripture, if I look at Eden and allow that to be the model of even how the relationships are to come together, then we would all have to admit that according to the word of God, the man is brought to the woman, not the woman to the man. And so my wife said, oh, you know, as she realized that, she says, I wish so much you would have proposed to me. And I said, I hear you, girl. And in 2017, we were at Meet Ministry, and uh, the Lord blessed in many, many ways. And I had the privilege of, before all of these witnesses, I went on my knees and I proposed to my wife to remarry me. And, uh, you know, it was a beautiful event, and we ended up having another ceremony where we were able to look at it, and we were grateful to experience more carefully and more closely the biblical example of what God has said. And, you know, we are Christians. We're called to live by the word. You know what I'm saying? We all got an opinion, and, and I understand that. But even our opinions have to be submitted to the word of God. And I just want us to get to a place where we, we look to the word. Say, Lord, okay, what do you show us in your word? What is the trend of scripture? And the trend of scripture is that God speaks to the man. The man goes to the woman, and this is how the relationship is established. And I believe we need to let that be our model because I don't believe God makes mistakes. All right, our next question is um, directed for Jacob and Yvonne, and it reads, what do you do as a woman if a divorced man is wanting to date you? I'll repeat it. It says, what do you do as a woman if a divorced man is wanting to date you? It's a question you need more details to answer. Is he scripturally divorced or not? If he's not scripturally divorced, you just to say thank you, but I'm not available for you. I mean, you need to say it in a nice way. Um, if it's a scriptural divorce, well, then you have scriptural basis to remarry. Um, you can't just say you can't. He's not qualified or disqualified because he's divorced. It has to be scriptural. Um, and if it is, well, there's a whole bunch of things to look at in addition to that. Um, but I will say there are things that you do need to look at additionally if the person's divorced. Why are they divorced? Um, were there issues with him that's going to be a problem for, for the new marriage? Um, so it's, I would say it's a, it's a yellow light, but not a red light. It's a light that you just want to look a little bit detailed, maybe speak to some of his counselors to find out some more details about him. Um, Spirit of Prophecy, there are several counselors of a man that was divorced, the wife left him, she got remarried, and Sister White said to the family that was against the marriage, she says, there's no reason why these two cannot get divorced. She says, a man has the right to the affections of a woman. So you cannot just say just because he's divorced, but why? Why is he divorced would be a better question. All right, thank you, Jacob. All right, our next question is for Melody and Dee, and it says, it seems like men are not in a rush for commitment. What should a woman do when she is ready, but a man seems to be dragging his feet? 
<laughs> you focus on your relationship with God and being faithful to what God has called you to. And you let him worry with the man and what's happening in that. That's not your business to hurry it up or slow it down. God is in charge of that. So it's not your job to worry about how fast that's going to happen. And trust me, I've been waiting 25, 26 years now. <laughs> and there is no greater fulfillment than being in the center of God. Even if my dreams haven't worked out exactly as I thought they would when I was in my 20s, I'm so thankful that I'm where I am today. Um, so God's plan is best, even if it's not necessarily in the timing or the order that you thought. Don't worry about if he's taking a while. He might not be the one for you. I waited for some, as some of you already know, and I'm so thankful that they were not the one for me. So don't worry about that. Let God prod him if he's supposed to be. Otherwise, God has a better plan. I think that there... For men, fear of failure is something that's going to keep you from fulfilling the call it has in your life. And if you feel God's calling you in a direction, then God's asking you to man up and commit and to make a decision. I think that that's something that we need to be more, more diligent and intentional in. God has made us to initiate. God has made us to lead. And we're not fulfilling our calling when we're afraid. And so, um, and this is coming from someone who had a lot of fear in their life for a long time. And it took me a while, my Christian experience, to grow into that. So it just... For a standpoint for men, it's, that's our call. And if you're not sure, I think if, if there are open lines of communication between both of you as to what your concerns are and where things are going, a lot of these things can be dealt with and better brought into the open. So the woman's not waiting for the man to do something. You both should be talking freely about where things are, where you're wanting them to go. And if you're not on the same page, then you both need to make a decision on what you're going to do. If you're not moving in the same direction, then move on. Um, but I think open communication can address a lot of that. Um, in ways that it probably wouldn't be as much of an issue. Next question uh, is for Mike. Mike, what are your thoughts about LGBT militant activists equating the quest of their rights to that of racial rights? I'll repeat it. It says, what are your thoughts about LGBT militant activists are you military activists? Equating the quest, or militant activists, equating the quest of their rights to that of racial rights. Um, from what I've, I've heard, uh, the black community is even up in arms about the, the uh, comparison. Yeah. And um, yes, to, to prove that you're a minority status, you have to, pr be pr you have to prove that you were born that way. There was actually a, an in, there was a, a team of four individuals, and two of them were women and two of them were men, and they were all homosexual. And they were doing this research, or they were they were putting forward this um, this paper to show that homosexuals are born that way. And as they were doing this promotion, the idea is to get minority status. You have to show that you were born that way, and you have to be you have to show that you are a minority status. And, and there was something else to that. And and they were basically using. Uh, the race issue of the 50s and 60s as their platform. So the same suffrage that, that the black people went through in the 50s and 60s was the same suffrage that gay people were going through. So the, the comparison was made only after they established the fact that gays were born that way. So that's how the comparison started to come. But um, again, the black community does not agree with that, um, that comparison. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm very serious about this. As a black man, I am thoroughly offended 
by those in the LGBT community trying to compare the struggle of what black people, and I don't take away from Indian or any other culture where there's been a struggle in that culture. I think, I think it is thoroughly offensive to try to equate the two. It's almost like a low blow. And um, we have to understand that Michael is here. Wayne is here. Uh, you know, Ron, Danielle, many people that are not even part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but they are making statements, I was once transgender, I am no longer. I was once gay, I am no longer. You can't find one black man on earth that says I was black, but no longer. You can't find one person. So there obviously is a choice factor somewhere in there. And to try to create the two is insulting, it is silly, it is childish, and it's very offensive. All right, thank you. Next question is for Andrea. How practically do you continue to show love and also evangelize to the homosexual family or friend with tact? Yes, for you of those who weren't in my talk today, I'll tell you the biscuit story. Um, I had a, my daughter called and asked if she could bring her girlfriend home. And I said, sure. Not and the, first. Well, I said, sure. And then I prayed <laughs> because I didn't know how to handle it with tact. And so we first, we had some rules that I love my daughter and I love her girlfriend. But I don't appreciate the relationship, nor can I condone the relationship between them. And so I talked to my daughter about that, and she knew that. And so she said, okay. That's okay. So she brought her friend, and we had a lovely time. They were very respectful of the parameters that we had laid down. Say what those parameters was that could probably help them. Well, just that the relationship was not to be showing itself in our home. And they couldn't sleep but in the same they room. couldn't sleep in the same room. They were they were to be separate and and be friends while they're in my house. No public display. Right, no PDA, no Ooh. public display of affection. Thank you. And so they did that. And her friend was quite lovely. And in the morning they got up and my daughter said, I want biscuits and gravy for breakfast. And I said, well, then you're going to have to help make it. And her friend said, I don't know how to cook. She said, my mother never taught me. And I said, well, today you will learn. And I said, you help me make the biscuits and I'll make the gravy. And so I taught her. She, just, she made them by herself. And I just instructed her and we had a great time. And we ate breakfast and then they, they went outside. We live on a farm and my daughter took her out to show her around. And when they came back, well, Anna came back in and said, Mom, she's out crying in the barn. And I said, why is she crying? And she said, because she feels more loved at your house than she does at her own. And that just, this was my first experience with, you know, inviting one of her friends to my home. And I felt so blessed that she came to my home and felt loved. And so I just tried to, yes? Tell them what happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what would I do without him? <laughs> He's my detail guy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this friend, she actually came three or four times, always respectful. We would talk about Jesus. 
my daughter loves Jesus, and we would, and she went to this friend went to a Christian college. We would talk about Jesus. We put her on our prayer line. We prayed for her all the time. Two months ago, she gave her heart to Jesus and left the homosexual community. Yes. Amen. Yes, and she called me, and we talked for two hours, and she was on fire for the Lord. So you you love them. You love them. And you, but you don't tell them they're okay where they're at, but you love them as they are, just like when I was in sin, Jesus loved me. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that story. Powerful. Next question we have is for Dr. Walsh. What is your philosophy on birth control? Um, I don't prescribe birth control. and probably more so because I don't, I don't work in a situation where I need to, uh, honestly. Um, the Catholic Church has a very hard stance against birth control. Um, and a lot of, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, their approach to birth control is more natural. So they will use, um, which is actually quite effective, um, different natural methods where there's no chemicals involved. Part of the reason I don't like writing for birth control, and I, I, won't, I won't get theological with this, I'll stay at the medical level, is because there are side effects. And there are problems that it can cause, um, especially when you take it long term. So I usually um, try to talk, you know, if a patient really wants it, I mean, obviously if they want it, they can get it. In our, in our culture, I mean, as a matter of fact, you can get some of the stuff over the counter now. Um, so my, my take on it really is, think about it, because if you're going to be on this for years and years and years and years, we don't really have the science that says, you know, what happens after you've been on it for such a long time. Uh, so I'm very careful with people, and then I talk to them about, you know, they have to go back to their spouse and really think about how many children do you really want, and how are you going to manage that, and there are very natural ways uh, to not use birth control and not have children. With that said, if I don't shame people if they're on birth control, um, you know, you know, that's, that's between them and God and, and their personal opinion and personal choice. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I honestly don't have a hard and fast stance on it neither way, either way. I have a more of a hard, and, a hard stance against taking medication you don't need to take because of the side effects. All right. Thank you. Our next question is for the panel. And they just, they ask, how can someone accept God's love? Well, I like that question a lot better than the last one. Um, <laughs> let me say this. I think one of the reasons sometimes people can't, in my opinion, of witnessing to patients, um, and if you listen to my sermons on Audioverse, uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman that I witnessed to in the addiction medicine clinic at Loma Linda University's VA hospital who told me, and I, I mentioned this to the group downstairs that it was with me, who told me that God that he had done too much wrong, he had sinned too much for Christ to ever accept him. Um, and I think sometimes the barrier for a lot of people to accepting God's love is that they think they have outsinned God's ability to save them. That they have done so much wrong that God could never be merciful or gracious towards them. And I like to remind them, as I reminded this patient, that if he had been the only one who had ever sinned, Christ would have left glory to die for him. And like I told the group downstairs, the man began to weep. And he looked me in the face and he said, you mean 
Jesus would have died just for me. He said, how do you know that? And I said, because he died for a wretch like me. And he went to the ground crying. I went to the ground crying. That man gave his heart to Jesus Christ on the floor of the hospital, on the literal floor of the hospital that day. Um, So sometimes what you have to remind, not sometimes, we always have to remind people that they cannot outpace God's grace. And the story of the prodigal, Samson, David after Bathsheba, are all stories that tell us that God is always, always has his arms open to receive us back. A lot of people don't feel they can be loved by God because they think they've done something so terrible that God can no longer love them. Yes. Say in 1 John chapter 4, um, in verse 16, the Bible says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And then it gives us a context that God is love, and those who abide in his love abide in God and God in him. But then it goes down to verse 19. It says that we love him because he first loved us. And the amazing thing is God is always the one to initiate, to take the first step. God came seeking to save that which were lost. Um, He's not waiting for us to get something right to then approach him. He always makes the first moves. How do we do that? Immerse yourself in what Scripture says about the love of God for you and ask God to make this real for you. And if you don't believe that God can love you or accept you, God's very practical. You can ask him to convince you. Make it clear to me that the way that you felt about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 is how you feel about me. And I think one of the greatest illustrations of God's love and pursuit of man is the incarnation of Christ. Um, Jesus came to seek his own, and his own received him not, and yet he loved them to the end. Jesus came and gave and gave to the end. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think it's easier for us to find a sense of affinity for Jesus than it is for the Father. He's more of a mystery to some of us. But Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at how I do life. Mm -hmm. And so spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how Jesus treated people that look just like you. And you know what you're going to find? He loves you just like he loved them. And he's going to love you to the end. Amen. I'd also like to add to that. I've known a lot of people who they know God loves them and that God forgives them, but they won't forgive themselves. And they have to, if God has forgiven you, forgive yourself for whatever it is you've done. If you have repented and you mean it, God has forgiven you, so forgive yourself. Steps to Christ says on page 37, it says, do not wait to feel that you are made whole, but say, I believe it. It is so not because I feel it, but because God has promised I found this quote from Education, page 294, and it's almost my mantra. It helped me to understand that no matter how depth, how far you've gone in the depths of depravity, that, that um, even your misunderstanding of God's patience and um, um, long-suffering cannot be worn out. It, it says, uh, page 294.2, The divine teacher bears with the erring through all their perversity. His love does not grow cold. His efforts to win them do not cease. With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome again and again the erring, the rebellious, and even the apostate. His heart is touched with the helplessness of the little child who's been subject to rough usage. The cry of human suffering never reaches his ear in vain. Though all are precious in his sight, it's the rough, the sullen, and the stubborn dispositions that draw most heavily upon his sympathy and love because he traces from cause to effect. The one who is most easily tempted and most inclined to err is the special object of his solicitude. 
Also, I think it's very important to stop looking at your sin. Um, for me, when I began the journey, it was overwhelming to see everything I have done um, and recognizing that I was not able to take it back and wash it myself. Um, but in 1 John 1, 9, it mentions, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So recognizing that there are two parts to that, that if we confess our sins, so I do my part. And knowing that God, he is faithful and just to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. So over time, I had to recognize that I had to have a, a genuine relationship with God because through that, I was then able to see that that is who he is. He came to set me free from what I was doing because when I, um, like I had mentioned earlier, just beginning the journey, it's overwhelming when you recognize how filthy you are compared to a clean God. But through the process of knowing God, I came to realize his lovingness. I had a comment. It's okay. Quickly, Sorry? briefly, yes. Yeah. Um, one of the great challenges with individuals receiving the love of Christ, and I relate to this very much, is we don't know truly what is faith or how to exercise it. And so you can hear the words of God, but there's often something in us that makes us say, you know, we don't, we don't believe it. And so when you look, I like to show individuals what faith is in super simple terms so they can start exercising it. In Matthew 8, 5 through 8, the story of the centurion, he tells Jesus, my servant is sick. Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. The servant says, nope, I'm not worthy to have you come. Speak the word only. And I know my servant will be healed. Jesus says in verse 10, that was great faith. And what he did was he trusted the word of God only to do what the word said it was going to do. So what is faith? Trusting the word of God only to do what the word says it's going to do. That's what faith is. So I, if I can get the person to understand that, then I say, so let's go back to Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I encourage them, accept this word only, and do not even consult your feelings. Trust this word only, and start to encourage them to think along those lines. When they do that, that is the journey, certainly not the end, but it's a beautiful journey of living by faith. Amen. All right. Uh, we have a lot of questions that are coming in now, so I'm going to try to keep everyone brief, all right? So please don't be uh, offended if I ask you to cut it short. Um, okay, our next question we have is for, for Kezia. And the question is, as a woman overcoming sexual addiction, what should be my approach to relationships and physical intimacy? How do I keep pure in thought and action? Having healthy boundaries is important. Learning, number one, God's views on sex. Um, so for myself, I've been relearning God's views. And with that, when I have uh, relationships with other people, learning that I have to have healthy platonic relationships. Um, and that entails keeping sex out the equation, um, including like cuddling, things that are just like very innocent um, and just recognizing that these little things that we do 
the feelings that arise during that process, ultimately you want to bring it to something else. So it's best to stay away from it, as we say in the Word of God. Um, you know, staying away from the appearance of evil. Did I answer the second question? The second question was, how do I keep pure in thought and action? This guy. The size of the man. Oh, <laughs> um, I think it's, it's uh, having to keep in mind to maintain the victory and recognizing to do whatever that means day by day. Um, for, one of my, for one of my things I realized, I had to stop looking at, because where I worked, um, I used to work on um, a construction site, so one of the things daily I had to deal with, which I quietly dealt with, was um, I would look at the, because I had there were lots of tradesmen um, throughout the job site, uh, so I tended to have a habit of just looking at the men's size. If you understand what I'm saying, great. If you do not, it is okay. Um, so I realized that Kezia, learn to bounce your eyes. Same thing when I'm sitting on the stoplight. Don't look at a female when she passes. Like I could look at the sky, I could look at the rocks. There's other things to look at, but it's continually keeping my mind focused upon Christ um, and just being diligent about that because it's very easy to go back to that lifestyle because it's an instant gratification. So as I've been in Christ, and learning about that, I've recognized the value of nature and seeing creation, how there's that process of waiting. Um, because with the sexual addiction, it's a very quick, instant gratification, whereas with Christ, learning to wait, it's a struggle. Um, but at the same time, there's beauty in the struggle. Our next question is for... I'm going to have to move on. Okay, really quick. By watchfulness and prayer, your weakest points can become your strongest. Amen. Next question is for Keith. Keith, the question is, social media and movies are 90%, almost 90% bad, especially for the youth. It's hard to use Facebook or Instagram or watch movies responsibly without falling into pride or other sins. Shouldn't our message about media be total obstinacy to our youth people, abstinence to our, for our youth? And abstinence. I guess I wouldn't necessarily see the problem in total abstinence. Um, we, you know, the Bible is, is clear that we shouldn't put anything before our eyes that's evil. Um, we shouldn't put anything before our eyes that's going to cause us to sin. I recently went to a school. And they were talking about how they had um, struggles with technology because the way the school had gone, technology had become ever more present. Um, and they were having trouble controlling it because kids are oftentimes know more about technology than adults do. And they know how to circumnavigate everything. And I just told them, like, well, I mean, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to cut it off if it's such a problem. Um, we are oftentimes afraid of cutting things out of our life um, because we, we think it's going to alienate us. But I guess I would say, what's more important, to be alienated from the world or to be alienated from God? Right. Thank you. Next question is for D. How can you overcome the fear of being in a relationship? Yeah, it's crazy. Like, we can go through situations where we actually have a Stockholm Syndrome with the things that harm us. So, like, for some of us, it's the fear of being known and accepted and loved. Like, I went through that because I had through so much rejection that I, I had to come to terms with the fact that God was wanting to bless me.
bless me, and I was needing to accept the fact that I could be accepted. And God can do that, but God had to bring me face to face with the core beliefs that were harming me in the process. And so he had to challenge my core beliefs that no, something this good could never happen to me. Well, he had to put me in a situation that was better than I thought I deserved that I couldn't run from. So God brought me face to face with a reality that I didn't want to accept and I had to yield to his truth. And so sometimes it can happen through there, but if we recognize that we're believing things that are not true, that God desires for us to have a relationship, but we're afraid of it, then we need to bring those fears to Jesus. The Bible says that fear doesn't come from God. Um, that, you know, that's not from Him. He wants to give us power, power to believe the truth and to walk in the truth. He wants to give us love, the ability to love and be loved. And He wants to give us a sound mind, the ability to think clearly. And so fear robs us of power. It robs us of the ability to love, and it robs us of a sound mind. And that's not what God wants for us. And so we can take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and recognize that God made me for relationships. God desires this for me. And there's, there's reasons for this. Ask God, what is it that has me so afraid? If you don't know, most of us probably do. There's root origins from rejection, from family issues, whatever. Go to the root structure, surrender those things to Jesus, and ask him to give you the ability to walk in healing and freedom and the fullness of the relationship that he wants for you. And I'm seeing God raise me from the dead in that area because of that. Amen. Amen. The next question is for the Jacksons. It is, is there a reason that people are getting married later in life compared to the Dave's days of Ellen and James White? I don't know about that. I don't see that. Oh, I don't see that people are getting married later in years of life. I'm seeing more young folk getting married from my perspective, even at the age of 18 and 20s. There are those who are getting married, but I don't see the comparison, no. Okay. I, I just, yes, not to argue or discount your point at all, I have seen a little research lately that suggests that millennials are oftentimes waiting longer um, until they're 28 or 30, or maybe a little bit beyond that. And the predominant reason seems to be that they are looking at the failed relationships of the generation before them, and they want to be more considerate before they get into a relationship themselves. But that's the only thing that I've, I've seen. And there's, there's also a, a vein of selfishness. I'd rather just do me than to waste my time with someone else. There's, there's a joint thing, but Keith's right. It, it, it is less than it used to be, um, and for those two new reasons is what I've seen. I do a lot of coaching in pre-marriaging, and those range from 20 to about 30 years of age. And so, you know, statistics can tell one thing, but the majority of people that I'm dealing with are in their 20s and 30s. Now, at a young age, and they see that, especially those in the church, they recognize that time is moving on. They need to take the cease to time, and they're making moves impulsively at a young age. All the folks, <coughs> yes, but uh, it's hard to say statistically, even though the millenniums and they, they own selfishness, but we find what that age group, what's the millennium? What's the age group of the millenniums? Hmm? Are they 50s? No, no. They're still young folk. All right, our next question is for 
Jacob. And the question, short question, it says, what is a scriptural divorce? Next question to the panel. Is it still possible to become whole or even a quote-unquote virgin again in the spiritual sense after having 100-plus partners, male and female? Do we believe God's word? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. That's right. That's right. So today is a new day right. with Jesus. And, and one of the things, in, in my ministry, one of the things that I thank God for is that, you know, what I've learned about in the, in the physiolo physiological world actually applies very well to Scripture. It does not contradict Scripture. And we know that with sexual abstinence, even physically, the body is restored. There are changes that are made um, in the body and, in, and even in the response to sex that uh, would, would move you back towards the way you would have been had you not. And that's if you smoke and stop smoking and many things like that. But um, I think what's most important when you ask a question like that um, about the virginity issue is that really a lot of times what we're asking about are habits. And the spirit of prophecy tells us that there are lines that are made in the brain that is, correlates exactly, use the word grooves, that are made correlate exactly to what happens when acetylcholine is used to make uh, behavioral memory pathways in the brain. And here's the thing, Ellen White says they can never be effaced, those grooves. Science says that the acetylcholine pathways can never be replaced, never go away. But how do you then break a habit? How do you become again a new creature, new creature in Christ until you get your glorified body? You create new pathways, new grooves, that, well, here's the key, that run deeper than the grooves you had before. Oh, yes. And in that, you can be restored to be completely whole um, from a neuroanatomical standpoint because what your default now is, is purity. Amen. Like it was initially. And also, I just want to echo that because there's this book I was reading, uh, Youth, Are You Preparing for Your Divorce? And coming from that similar background of having multiple partners, um, that was a concern of mine too. Like, how, how is it possible for me to be restored when I've already made such a big mess? And in the book, it had mentioned you could still go to the altar pure. Um, so for me, that was encouraging because to see that there was still a second chance. But with having that second chance, I actually had to put the work in, and that meant, off, meant uh, cutting off those old partners. Because sometimes we try to keep those partners for those just-in-case moments, but I've been realizing the value in learning to trust in God solely. Next question is for Andrea. The question is, what would you say to a parent who is told by their LGBT child 
you can't have any communication with their child unless you support their behavior. I love my child. I can't bear the thought of not seeing my child again. Uh, you may not like my answer. <laughs> God has to come first in your life. I love my child too. And if she came to me with that ultimatum, would tell her how much I loved her, but that I had to stand for what God says. And God has to come first. And I don't want you to go away from me. I love you and I want to have a relationship with you. I would plead for that relationship. But we can make idols of our children. We can serve our children above our God. And we do not want to do that. And so I would say that you plead for the relationship with your child and do everything you can to keep it. But if that is their ultimatum, I have to stand for God first. Next question is for John and April. How does one overcome or deal with unrequited love? Unrequited love. Um, explain what that is. An unreturned love. So I love somebody and they don't love me back? That kind of thing? Mm -hmm. That's tough, man. <laughs> well, what we really started our sessions with tonight were this, this presupposition that anyone who is in a Christian relationship must realize that if they're looking for another human being to provide for them ultimate fulfillment, then they're looking in the wrong place. The only place we can find our ultimate fulfillment is in God. And that's through Jesus Christ. So everyone who comes into a relationship with someone else is not really ready to enter a true Christian relationship unless they are first trying to get their ultimate fulfillment in God. I think that even a person who has unrequited love will realize that their God has never turned their love away. And if you go to him first for your ultimate fulfillment, I don't think it's going to matter that much that some other human being does not return love to you. It's trying to get that love from God first and foremost. That may sound hokey, but I think that's how it works. Next question is for Melody. As a single individual, how do you deal with people asking when you are going to get married? Questions coming from family and church members. Yeah, I just say when God, in God's perfect time, but he has me on a more important task right now. So I talked about that a little bit in my seminar. Don't let that get to you. Just go forward. I would strongly encourage adults in the room to leave us alone. <laughs> Get over yourselves. Like, forgive me for that, but I just, what God is doing in a person's life isn't even that person's choice necessarily. And it's kind of frustrating, forgive me for this, but it's, it's kind of frustrating to be in situations where people look at you as if there's something wrong with you. Um, and you're branded in a funny way. I mean, like, being a single minister is not easy. Like, I'm unpastorable because I have no degree and have no wife. Like, it's, it's like two scarlet letters for pastoral ministry. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, when it comes to, and like parents saying, when are you going to give me grandkids and other things, 
Our job is to lay these precious souls at the feet of Jesus and let him lead them where he needs to lead them, when and how. And let him worry about those timelines and details. I feel the same way about character growth. Like, how fast you grow is none of your business. Your job is to stay in the soil and to go where God is leading you. Um, not to look at what everybody else is doing. It is difficult, especially once you get over the 30 hump, but um, to feel like, what about this person, what about this person? But yeah, that pressure is totally unnecessary. Uh, singleness is hard enough without the reminder. Um, but I will tell you this much. Jesus is the most amazing spouse I'm ever going to have in my life. And I'm coming to understand that. And I'm appreciative for that lesson. I think that there's also something else that's going on there. It's, it's almost a passive-aggressive way to condemn someone. And, and nobody knows that I'm single more than I do. And so when, <laughs> so when somebody asks that question, it's almost an implication like, what's wrong with you? that you can't be married. And, and I think that um, you do a disservice to Christ because in the Bible, it's a blessing to be single and to work single-mindedly for the Lord. Um, and, and I think that we, it's a natural thing and I think it's kind of a cultural thing in church to assume that if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. And um, I think that we should be more supportive of people that are single Amen. and to um, support them and lift them up and let them know that they have a calling, that they have value. A lot of times it's the single people in the churches that don't get included in social events because we don't have a partner to bring. And I think that there should be more emphasis put on the blessing of being single. A friend of mine has a piece of paper on her mirror and, and, she, and it says this. She says, I want, I want to be so hid in Christ that a man would have to find Christ to see me. Next question is for Kezia and Dr. Walsh. I have many people tell me it is not fair or healthy for someone not to have sexual release. Not having an avenue of sexual release is seen as a death sentence. Okay, so that, that's just not true. Um, <laughs> not a whole lot of science I need to give you on that one. Um, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, obviously sex in the right context does actually improve or, or, or enhance health. That's the way I would say it. Um, so when, when married couples are, are sexual in the way that God has outlined, there is good that happens in it. But if you've never been sexually active if in, the, in, the, in the, the confines of the way the scripture describes it, I don't think you, you don't get that, you, there's no deficit. There's nothing that doesn't happen for you. Um, somebody mentioned zinc earlier. I mean, you get to keep all that zinc, right? Um, <laughs> so if, I think what is, what, is, what is more dangerous is trying to find a way to satisfy yourself outside of Christ's will. And that is not good for your health. Um, finding peace in Christ Jesus is one of the things that our society is learning the hard way is very good for us. The rise in, in mental health problems, suicide, drug addiction, I talked about that in one of my sessions downstairs, all go back to the principle that God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. If you try and fill a God-sized hole in your heart with anything but God, you will become addicted or habituated to that thing. Um, so what will really most enhance your health is being intimate with the Lord through his word, by the power of his Holy Spirit. 
uh, one of the things I had to realize was that I was not going to die. Um, because when you've had it for so long, and on top of that, it's in the wrong context, you, you come to a place where you believe this lie, thinking that I'm going to die if I do not have it. Um, so as I've been on this journey, I've been realizing what I just truly need to have in the sense of a, kind of a replacement is a better dopamine. So instead of going to sex for that dopamine fix, there are other healthier alternatives that I could go to. So like working out, um, having like new activities, um, stop isolating myself. So there are alternatives, but I had to come to a grip and realize like I'm not going to die. Like you're not going to die if you don't have sex. I'm just going to briefly jump in even though I wasn't, wasn't asked. I'll make an analogy here. Um, a lot of times you tell people, um, I, I eat a plant-based diet, and they look at you like, well, well, what do you eat if you don't eat meat? As if there was nothing else on God's green earth for you to put into your body. It gets even worse, you know, if you tell them you don't, you don't eat cheese and you, know, and you don't drink milk and those kind of things. And the world has taught us to have the same view towards sexuality. You know, if you're not overly sexualized, well, well, what do you do? As if there's nothing else on God's green earth for you to do. And so, um, we have to, I think one of the most important things we can, we can do is um, stop listening so much to the influences of the world that are raising these questions. These questions don't come from God. They come from worldly philosophy and vanity, and they come from the emptiness of other people who are not finding satisfaction in God, and then trying to place that same dissatis dissatisfaction upon you. Next question is from Michael. Please tell us whether you have any advice to give to sisters of brothers that notice, that notice men and seem lost with respect to their sexuality. Yeah, let me read it again. Please tell us whether you have any advice to give to sisters of brothers that notice men and seem lost with respect to their sexuality. Okay, great. Um, I have three sisters who I had no idea were even praying for me. I suspected one was, but my other two sisters, um, I had no idea that they were, they were praying for me. They never stuck their finger in my face and told me that my gay life was an abomination and that I was gonna burn. Um, instead, what they did is they, as Andrea demonstrated, they loved me. Um, my sister never refused to invite my lovers over with me for holidays. She never stopped me from interacting with my nephew. She really demonstrated Christ-like love, but she recognized that prayer was her first line of defense rather than her last resort. And I think that when you notice, that, like let's say you, you notice your brother checking out guys, that's an issue, but it's not something necessarily that you want to confront or open up unless they were willing to, but you have power available to you. You know, Alan White says that prayer moves the arm of omnipotence. And so if you need a little bit of power on your side, prayers should be the first line of um, defense that you go to in helping to assist somebody that you think or fear may be um, straying. For the whole panel, the question is, should you pursue a godly relationship with a past partner you had sexual relations with? 
If you know genuinely you are doing, you have turned aside from that old lifestyle and you have now become a new creature. And if you know that that person also by the fruits that they are showing, that they also have become a new lifestyle. So that means that our old things, our old habits have now, have now passed away. So being that you guys are both new, I would believe that it is okay considering that both of you are generally, have generally left that old lifestyle and no longer partaking in that lifestyle and have come to an agreement in recognizing that, okay, as we enter this courtship, we have our boundaries set, we are going to honor God, we are gonna honor our bodies because we, knew, we know what, ha we, what happened in the past and we do not wanna um, displease Christ. So moving forward, we're gonna keep these boundaries, we're gonna keep Christ first and continue moving forward as we are new in Christ. Next question, Michael. What are your views on introducing children from pre-K through first grade on LGBTQ? Now in most schools, they are introducing the subject to the young ones without parents' consent. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's a form of um, child abuse myself. In the European Union, uh, they have been trying to push this agenda through the sex education system that from zero to four years old, they wanna teach children lustful masturbation not just how to do it, they want to teach them how to enjoy it. By the time they're eight years old, they want to teach them homosexual practice, meaning that the teacher will step out of the room and put the boys with the boys and the girls with the girls. And by the time they're 15 years old, they want to teach them BDSM, which is um, um, sexual abuse, how to abuse your partner. Um, all of that, in my opinion, is um, definitely um, nothing short of child abuse. What happened back in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, is the U.S. government funded um, Kinsley, Alfred Kinsey. Uh, they gave him funding and they actually um, had him to uh, write these studies about uh, sexuality. And in his studies, he gave men stopwatches and asked them to molest their daughters and sons. Yep, and they paid them. They, these men were paid money. And basically, the stopwatch was to control the, how the length and duration of the orgasm or whatever. And his, his findings brought forth that children were actually sexually active and, and aroused. So he did a study with a six-month-old female infant and kept her awake for over 24 hours and determined that she had 22 orgasms in that 24-hour period of time. She was stimulated orally and digitally, and he determined that an orgasm was passing out, vomiting, and screaming. And so this is what the whole world now is using as their basis for sex education for our young people. It actually um, is infiltrating the media quite heavily, too, and so it's coming more or less from the top down. We're seeing a lot of science backing for this. We have to recognize it for what it is. It's science falsely so-called. Um, I've seen um, media recently where, for example, like Bill Nye is promoting this. And of course, he's known as the science guy. You know, he has built up a level of, of trust. We have been trained to trust science as a society. Um, but many times um, at the sacrificing of our own beliefs and um, it, it's not healthy. I've seen a, a, in one of Bill Nye's programs, 
um, they were actually using the analogy of ice cream and talking about different flavors of ice cream and how you know you can have combinations of flavors all in the context of sexuality what you're doing in the context of media is you're using something that people like and they identify with and um, you're you're creating an association with kids um, that's very dangerous you it happens all the time for example in advertising um, because they're trying to get people to release certain chemicals in their body like like dopamine or endorphins or oxytocin or things like that by associating good things with not very good things and so that's what we're seeing a lot of and it's it's very dangerous I'd, I'd like to add one more thing that i think is relevant um there was a study done with these uh male prostitutes from afghanistan and in afghanistan culture it's it's unlawful for a man to have an affair with another woman, but it's okay if he has sex with a male. So what they've done is they've actually kidnapped um, um, boys that are pubescent or prepubescent, and what they've done is they've repeatedly sodomized these boys, and then they train them or groom them to become these uh, transvestite prostitutes. They interviewed some of the prostitutes, and they found that um, many of these young boys were never attracted to same sex, but because of the repeated victimization, they found the behavior um, easy to engage in. So uh, again, by, by implementing education to our young people, even before puberty, what you're doing is you're training children to grow up to become bisexual, homosexual, and to engage in these sexual practices. And again, and that's why I believe that it's um, ultimately child abuse. Because children that have never been exposed to sexual things, I, I was never molested as a kid. And it wasn't until puberty where, where sexual thoughts or whatever came into my head. But I have a colleague who was molested at four years old by a male. And that's what began this journey. From the moment he was four years old, he was obsessed with, with sexual thoughts about the same type of person that molested him, which was an adult man. And so you can train young people also in sexual sin. We're almost, almost out of time here. Uh, just one or two. We'll see how this one goes. This one is to Dr. Jackson and Dwayne Lemon. What is the significance or value of making this statement, bride from my side? Is this something all men should do publicly to let their wife know they are valued? <laughs> you know, I don't know if there's any of us in this room that has never been influenced by somebody else. <laughs> and so I think it's okay to be influenced by others because, you know, Christ Object Lessons talks about the talents, and one of the talents is influence. We all have it. What we want to do is do it for good. So the day that I heard Brother Jackson, whom I termed dad, when I heard dad say, my bride from my side many years ago, my first thought was, yeah, that's true. You know, I was like, the bride did come from the side. So then I talked to my wife and said, hey, girl, I said, you my bride from my side. <laughs> and then, you know, she was just like, oh, you know, whatever. And I was just like, oh, she likes it. So from that point forward, I said, well, I'm gonna call her that all the time. And so it just really stuck with me because I, I find that it just reminds me very much that our marriage is still fresh. It's still new, you know, often, they go from bride period to just wife period. And maybe there's some people that literally make that distinction with the verbiage where 
you no longer look at your marriage as fresh and new and lively and all of that, and now she's just my wife. And so for me, I'll, I'll go ahead and work with that. I mean, I, I call her bride from my side because I heard it. It sounded good. It made sense. There was no sin in repeating it, and it was a blessing. And so ever since then, I've been doing it. But he influenced me for sure for that. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, last question is for Kizia and Michael. How does one capture negative or illicit thoughts and submit them to the Lord? better capture them. Um, <laughs> one of the things, um, as I've been on this journey, because I've been in the lifestyle for about 14, 15 plus years, as I've been on this journey uh, to wholeness, it's a daily activity. Daily asking Christ in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So when those thoughts arise, I have the ability now to take hold of it and to put it aside. Um, but it's a daily activity. It's a new habit that has to be built. Because one of the things like I had shared earlier, like on the construction site, I was already used to just looking, browsing around. That's what I normally did for all these years. So now having to build a new habit and realize, okay, Kezia, this is not pleasing to God. And at the same time, it's also hurting you because now I'm having all these, all these images. I have to constantly fight these images. So the best thing to do is to realize when these thoughts do arise, to bring them before Christ. Um, and then also when those thoughts do arise, if you are taking time out to memorize scripture, um, Psalm 119.11 tells us, um, thy word have I hid in thine heart that I might not sin against thee. So there's that value in recognizing I have to know God's word in order to fight these sin thoughts that come about. Uh, there was a, a, a thing that happened. I became a vegan when I accepted Christ, and, and that was a real challenge when it came to ice cream. And I remember it was one night, um, I come home, and I knew that I had vegan ice cream in the fridge, and I had this fantasy. I was going to put honey on it and some wheat thins, and I was going to put some blueberries and raspberries on it. I was so hungry, but it was 9.30 at night. And so I said, all right. Well, I came inside, and, and the Lord and I were having this dialogue. And, and I said, I... I, I I can't resist. I, I'm going to have that. And the Lord said, well, can you just wait and at least take your shower before you have it? And I'm like, all right. So while I'm in the shower, I'm washing my head. And as I'm washing my head, I'm thinking, ooh, and I've got, I've got like maple syrup. Maybe I can put that instead of the honey. I mean, I'm thinking about what I'm prolonging myself to do. And the Lord was just asking me to cooperate with him. He knew that I couldn't have the victory on my own. But as I'm in the shower and I'm thinking about this ice cream that I'm going to have, all of a sudden... The next time I thought about that ice cream, I was already in bed, the doors were locked, the dogs were walked, and I'm in bed, and I sat up and I go, my ice cream! <laughs> and what was so amazing is the Lord was teaching me an example of how he was giving me victory, not just in sexual areas, but also even in dietary or whatever appetite is, if I would just submit to him resist the devil and then he will flee and what was so beautiful is it was another situation i was going to um prayer meeting and i had a pretty hot car it was a mercedes convertible two-seater and i had my bible right beside me and i'm on my way to jesus and all of a sudden i get to a street light and and the person that pulled up next to me noticed the car and then i noticed that he was gay i could just it we call it gaydar i don't know if you've ever heard of it so all of a sudden i said to god i said I want him more than I want you. And I was just being real. And when the light changed, I forget if he followed me or I followed him, but I wasn't in a mood for prayer meeting now. 
And fortunately, I lost him or he lost me. And so I wasn't going to go to church now. I went home, frustrated. Already the, the switch was on. And I prayed to God, and I was looking up every verse that I could find in the Bible about um, victory over temptation, and it wasn't cutting it. And it was in Orlando, Florida at 7.30 in the summertime. So the sun wasn't even going to set for two more hours. And I closed my Bible, and I said to God, I said, I'm going to go to bed now. And if, and if I don't stay asleep, I will get up and I will find sex. I live within two miles of five gay bars. I could get on the internet and have an illicit situation in just moments. And the most that I could do, the only thing that I could do is I could go to bed. Because if I could shut down my mind, I might find victory. But I needed his cooperation. And I told the Lord, if I wake up in two hours or four hours, I can get sex until two in the morning. And I went to sleep that night at 7.30 while the sun was still blazing. And the next time I was conscious, it was 6 o'clock in the morning. I slept almost 11 hours. But I woke up praising God because I did everything that I could do, and he filled in the rest. And that's the process that I've been learning. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.